Tonight as well. 
and Brother Andrew, I think, is going to speak first to continue with uh, his study in Third John. And then Michael will be picking up with the book of Jude after that. Um, just to remind you that uh, there is supper after the conference downstairs. Um, please feel free to stay. We'd love to have you and uh, enjoy some fellowship with you over uh, some food and uh, bites to eat. So please stay after the conference. Maybe we should just say at this stage that as an assembly at Holborn, we just want to thank the brethren and sisters of Torrey for their kindness in allowing us to use the building today and making it available and so comfortable for us. We do appreciate that and thank them for that uh, facility. So let's start the second half of our conference with number 76, hymn number 76. How bright that blessed hope, Jesus will come, let us our heads lift up. Jesus will come, morning so bright and clear, mansions of God appear, sin shall not enter there. Jesus will come, and after the introduction we'll stand and sing the hymn together.
Uh, Father, we bow together in thy presence, and we come in that lovely and fragrant name of the Lord Jesus. We thank thee for reminders today already of the value of his crosswork, and for everything that he accomplished for thyself, and what he has achieved for us. We bow together to thank thee. Our hearts are touched as we consider what he endured, for none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, or how dark was the night that the Lord passed through, ere he found the sheep that was lost. We do thank thee, our Father, that we stand today on the resurrection side of Calvary, and we look forward to the day when with unfettered hearts we shall sing, and with eyes that are clear we shall see him, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We thank thee that he is today seated at thy right hand, a prince and a saviour, highly exalted, and we know that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to thy glory. And we thank thee that we belong to him. We thank thee that he belongs to us. And we bow together in grateful thanks for everything that thou hast done for us. We thank thee that thy grace touched our lives and brought us to thyself. We so often rehearsed in thy presence. Why were we caused to hear thy voice and enter where there's room while others make the wretched choice? and rather starve than come. And so we thank thee for moments that we can spend singing his prayers and listening to his voice. We pray for help for thy two servants tonight as they bring thy word to us. We thank thee for help given in an earlier part of the conference. And we pray that thou wilt strengthen them again tonight and cause us through them to hear thy voice. We do commend ourselves to thee. We we take a moment to think about so many people in our world today who are in different circumstances. There are so many people with nothing to wear and little to eat and nowhere to live. And on account of the designs and desires of wicked men, many are suffering today. We pray that in the goodness of thy mercy and in thy kindness, thou wilt look upon those that need help and grant them to know something of thy presence and draw them to thyself. So we would commend ourselves to thee as we seek thy blessing to be with us. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Turn again to the word of God, to John, uh, third John please, third John. <coughs> My apologies for going slightly with the time earlier on. Um, let's hope that I leave Michael a little bit of time afterwards, I'm sure I will. Third, the third epistle of John. I'll just read this is um, it's actually the second shortest in English and it's the shortest in Greek of all the letters of the, the New Testament. The elder unto the well beloved. Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, 
even as I so prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, or thy truth, slightly more accurately, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity, thy love, before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. He that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath a good report of all men, and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. We know the Lord bless us. A reading of his word. <clears throat> we have um, second and third John, two little sister epistles, if you can call them that. There's a lot of comparisons that we can make and contrasts we can draw um, between the two little letters. When you do compare them, you, you notice a few very obvious things. Firstly, that they're the two shortest books, as I mentioned, in the New Testament. Secondly, that they're both authored by the elder. That's how he refers to himself. Not an elder. Peter speaks of himself as an elder. um, But the elder. This is a position of of, of preeminent prominence, I should say, that makes him different. He is also an apostle. He was the oldest... uh, remaining apostle of the apostolic band and he speaks with an authority that is uh, apostolic we'll see that as we go down this little letter so they're both uh, from the elder they both deal with the subject of hospitality and fellowship and support as we'll see and they both mention this emphasis on love and truth being linked together We'll see that as we go down the second and the third letter as well. There are contrasts as well that can be drawn and should be drawn. Second John 
The real message of Second John is that care is needed when offering hospitality. In other words, don't have fellowship with false teachers. That's a very broad, general statement that comes out of Second John. Third John is really emphasizing the need for true hospitality and true uh, support. Don't stop having fellowship with true teachers is the message of third John. You can see how that's really just the, the same coin has been flipped uh, across as we look at third John. Second John is written to a lady. The third John is written to a man. The second John is written to a lady who has a family. Third John is written to a man who does not seem to have a family. Or there's no uh, reference to it. And yet they both were involved in hospitality and sharing and, and, and so on. The problem in second John was from without. It was the false teachers. The danger of them coming in, of spreading a message, of, of affecting people. It was false teaching from outside the fellowship coming in. That was the main danger in second John. In third John, the problem is actually inside the fellowship. It's inside the assembly, we might. That's the way it's worded here. And the problem is not so much false teaching. It is fleshly pride. Now, I think that's probably affected just as much Christian testimony down through the ages as false teaching has. One's a doctrinal problem. The other is a moral problem. You may try to weigh up which is the most uh, important sin, if you can put it that way. It would be hard to do so. You'll remember the initial sin, the first sin that we read of uh, chronologically anyway in the Bible, is the sin of Satan. And what did he do? He was trying to be like the most high. It was a sin of pride. It was trying to, a sin of trying to tear God from his throne to, to put yourself there. And really we're going to see that at the heart of 3 John is this problem. A problem that was exemplified and is exemplified in this, teach, uh, this person by the name of Diotrephes. The recipient of this letter is Gaius. Now there are a number of Gaiuses in the New Testament. Uh, it probably wasn't any of them. There is, uh, for instance, there is Gaius... Of Macedonia, I think that's Acts 19. There is Gaius of Derby, that's Acts 20. There is Gaius of, of, of Corinth, that's found in, in Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But it seems that here we are 30 years later or so, and this was probably another Gaius. It was a very popular name, as I say, in the ancient world. Why does he write his letter? Well, what we're going to see is that he is writing to encourage Gaius to continue to be hospitable and supportive despite the pressure from a certain source not to be. That's the first point that we note. Then, of course, he is writing to inform Gaius that he had an eye on the situation with Diotrephes. So John the Apostle is writing and saying, listen Gaius, you might think nothing is happening but... I am, I am surveying the situation. I know exactly what he's like. 
The third point we might say as a reason for writing is, is to, to restrain Gaius, who was a good man, we will see, from being swayed by this man who possibly has a, a larger, a more dominant anyway, personality than Gaius. There was just a danger that something of diographies would affect how Gaius was acting. And also, uh, the fourth main reason it comes out in this little letter is that he wants to commend to him another brother. A brother by the name of Demetrius. And this brother had a good report. This is a brother of integrity who is travelling through, it seems, and um, this little letter is probably in his bag to give to John. Or to guys. So if, if we want to break down this little letter, uh, we will do so around the main personalities. We have verse 1 to 8, the hospitable man, Gaius. Then we have from verse 9, and, well, verse 9 and 10 we'll say, we have the tyrannical man, Diotrephes. And then from verse 11 to 14, we have the commendable man, Demetrius. So John, in the first case, when he's speaking about Gaius being a hospitable man, John is confirming him in his exercise. In the second case, he is condemning Diotrephes. And in the third case, he is commending to Gaius, this man, Demetrius. So we have really three different uh, pen portraits that come from the Apostle John of three men that are um, potential examples. Two positive examples and one negative example. I hope we can learn a few lessons from the life of these men. <clears throat> first of all, when you look at this first section, verse 1 to 8, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, as we have it here, want us to notice that in the first four verses we have something about Gaius's truth his truth you'll see a little expression in verse 3 I, I, I read it slightly differently verse 3 and testified of the truth that is in thee or, or perhaps more accurately testified of thy truth so brothers have come back some of these missionary brothers that had been sent out from John had come back and testified to John about the truth that was in him, or his truth, and so on. Then you come down to the next section, verse 5 to 8, and it's not so much thy truth, but you'll see in verse number 6, thy charity, or thy love. This was the other thing that had come back. They have borne witness of thy love before the church. So again we have these ideas of, of the balance between truth and love. That are brought out in, this, in the life of this man uh, Gaius. Let's look in a little bit more detail uh, at this little letter. The elder unto the well beloved Gaius whom I love in, in truth. A very similar statement as we have in the first or the last letter as we mentioned. This is the thought of loving in reality. He's called here the well-beloved Gaius, or Gaius the beloved. This was what people 
thought of when they thought of Gaius. They, they just said, he, we love him. <laughs> Wouldn't it be lovely to have that kind of Christian testimony where, where what, when people think of you, the first thing that comes into their mind is, yeah, that's, that's, that's someone who's worthy of our love. That's someone that we love. The Christian character of this man is evidently uh, seen as we saw in the elect lady uh, earlier. You'll notice how John then refers to him from then on, verse number 2. He says, Beloved. Verse number 5, he says, Beloved. Verse number 11, again he says, Beloved. John takes on board this because he says, I love. I love him in all reality. John was not averse to giving a compliment, a well-earned compliment to someone. Now, we're British. Well, I don't know. I'm from Northern Ireland. I'm from that side of the wall, but we're British. We're British here, aren't we? Maybe we'll not start the argument. We're Scottish, some people here as well. But British are noted for their stiff upper lip. Sometimes it's very difficult to give people compliments. If you're like that, you know, we're not Americans, you know, <laughs> Americans have the expression, you know, I just went and loved on someone. And the kind of, we get this kind of feeling that's gushy. And, well, that's true. It might be to us. But there is a real sense in the New Testament that compliments when given well, and the words are chosen wisely, and they're not flattery, and it's not necessarily all the time, it is a good thing. And as John is writing, he says, listen, I love you. I care about you. And I know that you have that character that people say you're beloved. He says in verse number two, beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. Now, one or two observations here. Um, I think it's perhaps better to read it like this. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in help. J&D puts it like this. I wish above all things. Or sorry, I desire that in all things that I should prosper. It's not that he's saying the most important thing is that you're prospering in health. That, that, that would be against the character, not only of the New Testament, but it would be against the character of John to put spiritual things of less, important than, uh, of less importance than, than health and, and, and well-being. Really what he's saying is that in all things, I would like you to be in the same condition as your soul is. He says, I know your soul's health. He's going to speak about that in the next verse. He says, I know your soul is prospering. And I want you to be helped in the way in these other areas. In fact, the, the word here for wish or, or, or pray, that's the thought, opens to us the, the on good authority why we should pray for temporal blessings on our friends. Isn't that interesting? 
Because you see, the emphasis of the New Testament, when you look at prayer, is on the spiritual blessings of people. You think of the great prison prayers of Paul. He speaks and he says, I bow my knees before the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And he speaks about being strengthened with all might, so that we might be able to comprehend with all things, with all the saints, what is the height and breadth and depth and so on. And to know the love of Christ. It's spiritual things that Paul emphasizes. But what John is saying here is that there is nothing wrong with wishing and praying for the prosperity and health of a brother or sister in Christ. Now that's good that we find that verse. Because very often we put a lot of emphasis on this and not so much on the spiritual, don't we? At times. Like, if you've been in the prayer meetings I've been in, um, sometimes we, the majority of the prayer meeting, would it be fair to say, is on the, the physical well-being of people. With a, a little emphasis on spiritual things. Well, it's usually the other way around. I'm just saying that in the New Testament. As he goes on further, um, he says, For for I rejoice greatly. In other words, he's going to say how he knows that his soul is prospering. There's evidence of it. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in the, thy truth, even as thou walkest in truth. So what he's saying here is that truth has become part of him. You see, there's a danger for us that we compartmentalize in our lives and and you, well, that's by that, that's biblical truth, and, and we put it in a little box. That's something I can speak about on Tuesday night at the Bible reading, or or that's something I'll think about on Sunday if I'm giving a word, or, or perhaps that's the way we think. And, but that's not the way Gaius thought of the truth of God. It's not the way we should either. Really, the thought is that he had assimilated that truth. It had become part of him. It had become his truth. It's similar, I think, to uh, Romans chapter 2 when Paul speaks about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't call it that. He says, my gospel. My gospel. You see, had it not only won him on the Damascus Road, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, but it had transformed his life. And he was completely, as it were, addicted to it. And so he was changed. He was changed. He was transformed. It became his gospel. And here's Gaius. Now, it is interesting. John does not need to give to this brother all the, the things that he said to um, the elect lady. He doesn't need to tell them tell this brother that there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world and, and what they believe and so on. Because this brother had such a grasp of the truth. This was not going to be the problem with him. He had other problems. But this problem, this brother could have dealt with such issues because the truth had become part of him. I remember I was when I was working um, many years ago uh, for a diagnostics company in Northern Ireland and I remember we were taken, us kind of junior staff, were taken by um, the CEO of the company 
um, and the owner of the company, he built this company up from scratch and it was maybe a thousand uh, of a workforce then. And he took us into his home and he, he spoke to us about his field of expertise and you know everything was at his fingertips. He just knew his feet. And I remember looking at him and saying, I would just love to have that same grasp of the scriptures. Young brother, young sister, immerse yourself in the word of God. Make it your truth. Don't be satisfied with second-hand knowledge of scripture. Come to it, pray over it, enjoy it, live it. That's what was happening with Gaius. John says, even as thou walkest in truth. It worked through his whole life. It's that all the way around kind of truth. It, it affected every day of the week. It wasn't just a, a Sunday only, only kind of Christianity. He says in verse number four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You'll notice in the first, the letter before, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in the truth. He's speaking about her physical children. Now he speaks of his own spiritual children. Perhaps, perhaps he had seen this man saved. We don't know John speaks in this way in a more general sense in First John about those who are his children. But you know, there's just something about there, there. There's John, and perhaps he was there when, when Gaius was born into the family of God. And I, I remember yesterday, I was just looking at some photographs. I very rarely do this of of little Isaac, my boy, when he was born. And it was just a little bundle. And then you think of the fact that there was that development, that progression, that. Then he starts talking and walking and demanding and all the things that little boys do. Dreaming, playing. And you just want to see that development. And, and for a father, it, it is his joy to look, up, look on and say, well, there's development happening. Everything is functioning as normal. Is that the way your Christian life is? When you got saved... Was there then that development after it? Was that, see that seeking after the Lord? Can were other people looking on and just, just glad that they could see it? Because that was the case with, with Gaius. I have no greater joy, John says, than to hear my children walking in the truth. Hey, he moves on from this whole thought of, of your truth to your love. Verse number 5 to 8. We'll not spend too long on it because we'll run out of time if we do. But it is interesting to see how he develops this here. Beloved, you're doing a faithful work really is the, the, the stress. What you do to the brethren, even to strangers. He's, he's, try, he's saying when you are working... In hospitality, when you are serving the Lord by serving these, these missionaries that are passing through, he says, the work you're doing is a faithful one. It's trustworthy. It's, it's honourable. You're being faithful to the Lord who you serve. 
And, and those, those missionaries have come back to me, says verse 6. They have borne witness of thy love before the church. So what was his truth and his love for the truth? He wanted to help the Lord's people as they were spreading the truth. And so he had a love for them. So truth is again linked to love. Whom if you bring forward on their journey, he goes on to say, after a godly sort are worthily of God, very interesting expression, thou shalt do well. In other words, John is encouraging him to continue in the work he was involved in. This brother who, was, who had an appreciation of the truth and who wanted this truth to be spread, he was working hard at it. One of the words there gives that thought of hard work. And there are three reasons why we should do this. Three reasons why we should uh, show hospitality and sport and sharing with those who are uh, involved in spreading the word of God. The next three reasons are given to us in the next verse, in the next two verses. Firstly, because for his name's sake they went forth. More accurately, for the sake of the name. You'll remember Matthew 28. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And so on. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Spreading the name, the savour of his name. We read off in 2 Corinthians. In the context of the gospel going on. They are trying to bring the name of Christ, the character of Christ, the reputation of Christ, the people who need him. So they went forth for the name. So the first reason that is given here is a precious reason to us. That's why he says we should um, be marked by hospitality and support. Then he says not only there's a precious reason, but there's a practical reason. Taking nothing of the Gentiles. You see, what, was, what would have happened in these days is that there were a number of like, people that had their own philosophies and ideas and they would have travelled from place to place and they would have gone into town and spread their ideas and, and whipped up a bit of enthusiasm and people would have given them money and they would have made sure that they milked the situation and then they would have moved on. But of course we know that that is not the character of the gospel. Paul brings that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The, the whole reason that the gospel, that, that he worked, for instance, uh, in his tent making, and he didn't take also of the believers in Corinth at that time, he was giving up that liberty for a very specific reason. It was that the gospel should remain free. Of course, the gospel cost everything. We were thinking about that earlier. It costs God everything, but when you bring the gospel to others, there has to be no idea or no, even the, a smidgen of a thought that they have to pay for it. So these missionaries, they went out and they were taking nothing of the Gentiles. Now, it didn't mean that they didn't accept a cup of tea from someone. That's not the, the force of it. Um, jo, uh, Paul isn't it writes in Acts 28. He says the barbarians did us no little kindness. They were hospitable to us. 
wasn't that he said, no, no, don't give it to me, I'm a Christian. But the thought is that when they were sharing the message of the gospel, they made sure that there was no strings attached. And because of that, John is saying here, Christians should support works that this world will not support. That's the force of what he is saying. So there is a practical reason as well as a precious reason. Notice in the next verse, there is a partnership reason. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be co-workers. Co-workers, I take it, for the truth. The idea is that we will be working together with one another for the truth. And of course, this man, Gaius, he had such a desire for the truth. He would see this as a wonderful partnership opportunity that he has to, to have these, these believers in his home and to share in that way. So you can see how, how John, as he is developing this section, he makes it very clear, first of all, that this hospitality, this hospitable man, he must continue what he's doing. Now we have to come to the next section. John condemns Diotrephes. You see, this is the main problem that we get in this letter. Verse number 9, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence, among them receiveth us not. Here is a man who had the audacity to refuse an apostle. He didn't receive the letter from them or the missionaries that came from him. We'll see in a second. Now it wasn't that Diotrephes wasn't orthodox in his beliefs. Now John loved the truth. He would have told us if that had been the case. No, no, this wasn't a, a problem with doctrine. This was a problem of a moral kind. This was pride, pure and simple. Sometimes, brethren and sisters, we can dot the doctrinal I's and cross the doctrinal T's, and yet our heart is like Diotrephes. We're just thinking about the big eye. We have to examine our hearts when we come to sections like this. Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence. That in all things, Colossians 1, he might have the preeminence. There is only one person that should have the preeminence among us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he received us not. John's not speaking that he was there with them, but rather the the, the, the emissaries that came from John were not received. Wherefore, if I come, and he intends to come as we'll find out, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, casting them out of the church. You see, there are really three things here. We'll leave them uh, quickly and move on. There are three ways in which he opposed and showed his rejection. Number one, he showed it by his words. Prating. It's an unusual word. 
Uh, it really, the Greek word has the thought of talking nonsense. The man was talking nonsense. He has no substantial evidence against anyone. He wasn't, he wasn't putting together a case against uh, John or against one of these people. He was just talking nonsense. But notice there's a little bit more prating against us with malicious words. That, that's the word evil that we have in the evil world. This is the word paneros in Greek. It, it has the force of malignant. You know, there, there's a kind of cacos, there's a kind of badness in Greek that, that, that it just stews in its own juice. And then there's paneros, which has the thought of it not only is not content to stew in its own juice, it wants to drag everyone else down with it. It's that word. Prating against us with malicious words. Our tongues can get the better of us at times. Now, I'm not saying we're dry This is a very specific thing. But we need to be careful. I know I need to be careful. You remember, James, the, sun, uh, the, the tongue sorry, is a fire, a world of iniquity. It's set on fire of, of Gehenna. His words, his actions. Not only does he have the audacity of, of, of speaking against the apostle, he also refuses himself to receive the brethren. His actions, he refuses the brethren. Then we notice his influence, forbidding them that would, casting them out of the assembly. So the man, he was basically turning himself into a tyrant. I will remember, John says. I will remember. I will cause this to be brought to mind if I come. He still has apostolic authority. Then he says in verse number 11, as we kind of transition to the last little section, Beloved, he says, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, he that doeth evil has not seen God. There's as a little thought in the background here that John seems to be applying the moral test. If you look at 1 John, there are three main tests of life. There's the moral test. That's me walking in righteousness. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So there's a moral test. There's the doctrinal test, that's what we had in the first letter, uh, the second letter, and also in the first letter, this idea that there's a test, what you believe about the Lord Jesus is important when it comes to life. And also there's a social test, your love, your love of the one for the other. If you don't love, if you hate your brother, you're in darkness, John says. So the three main tests that run through First John, but here he applies the moral test, he says, now listen, he says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. And then he goes further, he says, He that doeth good characteristically is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. He's calling into question, I believe, the salvation of this man. If this is the character of his life, and there's no change of it, it he says, he hath not seen God. Demetrius is the last man that we read of. And we have five minutes for Demetrius. John commends Demetrius 
He is different than the second man. It seems to be in this transition he says, now don't be following a man like Diotrephes. I think John is slightly afraid that even this good man, Gaius, could be influenced wrongly by the strong-willed, arrogant, (coughs) me-first, Diotrephes. You say, can one person have such an influence on the Lord's people? Yes. Can one person have an influence on an assembly? Like this? Yes. We all need to examine our own hearts. You remember the answer to the problem in Philippi. Let this mind be in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus. It was others first. He took himself down. And the pathway of, of humility. Of putting others first. Is not an easy pathway. It was one that the disciples found it hard to learn. You'll remember they argued among themselves. Who should be the greatest. And then Jesus took a child and girded himself. I, how do I view the assembly of the Lord's people? Do I just want my way or the highway? That was really what he was saying, wasn't it? Do, do I just want to be top dog? That's a challenge, isn't it? Will I speak about it? Perhaps trying to influence others? Those are... I know we look at this example and say things could never get as ugly as this. Do you know your own heart? Do you? I know my heart. I know the proclivities of the human heart. I mean, it got so bad that Satan would try to tear God from his throat. And we have got the same evil propensity in our hearts. Let us be careful with pride. It's devil. John commends Demetrius. Demetrius hath, he says in verse 12, a good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record. And you know that a record is true. This is kind of like a glowing, a glowing reference. First of all, he says he has a good report of all men. That's a general commendation. Says all the people that come into contact with this brother Demetrius, they say that he's a good man. And of the truth itself. That's not so much a general commendation, that's a scriptural commendation. There's something, you could take the word of God and kind of level it up beside Demetrius. Oh, he would have his flaws and faults. But you know, he's commended by the truth itself. Tremendous statement. And then, on top of it, we also bear record, and you know that a record is true. This is the authoritative commendation of of this, the elder. You say, why did he need to give such a commendation? May I suggest that either Diotrephes has already spoken against this man, or he is afraid that he will speak against this man. And so he gives this very glowing um, 
uh, reference, I take it, to offset that perhaps. Of course, Demetrius is worthy of it or it wouldn't be in the word of God. Ask ourselves the question, when your overseers sit down to write you a letter of commendation, is it difficult for them? Do they do it with tears or joy? Is there much they can write? Well, Demetrius was that kind of man that his life was a commendation of what he believed. I wonder if you took that letter of commendation and, and you, you brought it to someone in your workplace and they read it with the with the laugh. <laughs> that's not the that's not the boy I know. He was commended of all men. You remember when it when it is writing in uh, when, when Paul is writing in, in first uh, Timothy, isn't it? Speaking about overseers, he not only says that they should be blameless, which is interesting enough, but of, he mentions that them, of them having a good report of those from without. I think there are challenges in this for us all. As he draws this little uh, third letter of John to a close, he says he had many things to write then. He said that in the second letter to you. I will not with ink and pen, ink and read. The would use reads here. Write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. John wants to transmit so much more than he can in a little letter. But he says, Peace be unto thee. I think that's lovely. Of course, his mind probably is going back to the, the upper room when the Lord Jesus says, My peace I leave with you. Peace I, I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. And he says, Peace be unto thee. Here's a man and he's in a warlike assembly. Joseph says, Peace be unto thee. And then he brings in the thought of friends, and with this we'll close. Our friends, absolutely. A very unusual. Unusual truth. You don't find it in the epistles very often, if at all. You find it in the upper room again, of course, the Lord Jesus speaking of his own as his friends. He says, The friends, salutely, greet the friends by name. That's a challenge to me. You see, the good shepherd, he knows his own sheep by name. And as someone has said, the under shepherds and the sheep should know each other by name. There should be that individual greeting of each other it is actually it can preserve us from some of these errors you know sometimes think that the sisters are the ministry of friendliness in the assembly the brothers sometimes can batter away at some some small doctrinal difference and go away feeling a a little bit sore and you know by the time they get home, their wives call the other sister and say, Oh, can I help you tomorrow? Or can I do this or that? There's something about friendship, brethren and sisters. May the Lord help us to care for each other. To greet each other by name. And as he comes to the end of this little letter, he says, Now, Caius, you're in a difficult position. You're in an outside place, as it were. I'm on the outside place of this assembly. Isn't it interesting? In the Revelation, in the last, the last 
assembly mentioned in the seven churches, the Lord was in the outside place. There's a bit of a parallel here. But he says, we still have so much. So much to be thankful for the peace that God has given us. And the friends that we have. May the Lord help us as we pass over. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, before Michael speaks, as we'll just.